Uh, good afternoon and welcome. Uh, welcome to the wonderful M Pavilion on this balmy night, this warm night that we've all been waiting for, uh, and now it's here. Uh, I hope you're getting some benefit of the, from the fan, but it really is a great pleasure for me. I'm Sue Baker, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Art in Australia, and it is my pleasure to welcome you here uh, for this really special occasion. Um, I, before I do, I want to remind us that we live, we live and work and here uh, this evening on uh, the land of the Wurundjeri and the Boonwurrung people in a particularly sacred part of this part of Melbourne, of Nam, and that uh, generations of, thousands of generations of people have celebrated, come together uh, and been part of a community here on this site. And we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that we pay our respects to ancestors, past and present, and our respects to Aboriginal people here this evening. It's a great pleasure, of course, to see so many people here to launch this wonderful publication that came to us um, at Art in Australia uh, when Brian Castro and John Young uh, indicated that they had this project uh, uh, that would really translate beautifully, and I, I use the word translate deliberately because, as you know from looking at it, it's trilingual. It, it has Portuguese, Mandarin and English uh, text. This is particularly um, uh, uh, an interesting one for us because uh, it gives us a sense of the different communities that Art in Australia could be part of. Uh, it is very uh, a, a very pl a great pleasure for me to work with John, who I've known for many years, and to meet for the first time Brian Castro. Uh, and while uh, John is an art artist of note that many of you will know from his work of many years, uh, and I recognise that um, Ark One, Susan and Robert here, uh, and um, also uh, Brian, who I believe we can claim, Brian, because um, you were a professorial fellow of creative writing at the University of Melbourne for, some t for a year. So we claim him at the University of Melbourne, but he is an esteemed writer and based in the University of Adelaide at the moment. And recently when this, this book launched, uh, we had a wonderful time not only seeing the exhibition... Uh, and, and seeing the book for the first time, but, but caught catching up and having a wonderful discussion. I want to thank also Ted Collis, Edward Collis, the, the editor of uh, Art in Australia, and Paul Carter for their written contributions, and John Warwicker, our designer at Art in Australia, for a most gorgeous, and I think you'll agree, most beautiful uh, design. There's a number of people who made this thing happen. Uh, Ashley Baldwin from John Young Studio, of course, uh, and uh, Vicky McGuinness, the managing editor of, of Art in Australia. Uh, this was made possible, this publication, um, by the generous support of the J.M. Curtsy Centre and the EU Centre for Global Affairs at the University Adelaide. Uh, and this was a significant um, partnership that we developed and would like to build on. Uh, we also want to thank Creative Victoria for their support of Art in Australia. Uh, so I would really like to now introduce our very dear um, senior fellow, Natalie King, 
renowned curator, broadcaster, and most recently, of course, as we know, the curator of the wonderful Tracy Moffat exhibition at the uh, Venice Biennale. She, uh, Natalie's going to uh, facilitate a conversation uh, between um, John and Brian. We will sound check to see whether the fan is too noisy, but at the moment we probably have to weigh up between fan and air, noise and air, so we'll see how we go. Um, my last point is that the books are for sale for $30, special deal tonight. Uh, please have a look at them. They're really, truly beautiful. So please make uh, Natalie welcome and Brian and John. Thank you. Thank you, Sue, for your warm introduction. And Waminjika, uh, welcome to M Pavilion. Uh, it's fantastic to see so many familiar faces in the audience as we gather under Rem Coolhouse's architectonic structure on a sweltering Melbourne evening uh, to celebrate food, fiction, poetry, art and photography with the launch and an in-conversation between John Young and Brian Castro, whose book has been published by Art and Australia Publishing uh, with support from the J.M. Curtsy Centre for Creative Practice at the University of Adelaide. As Sue mentioned, this is a unique melding publication. Uh, it is trilingual and it assembles fiction, poetry, artworks and recipes around the imaginary place of Macau and the real place Macau, which is the oldest European uh, settlement in Asia. As many of you know, Macau has undergone uh, significant transformation over the past 500 years from merchant port of refuge to Portuguese um, province. It was also a gateway for Jesuit missionaries and that's something that we'll touch on this evening. More recently, it's known as the Las Vegas of the East. But what does it mean for an author and an artist to think about a place as both imaginary and a real terrain. John and Brian have a history of collaborating and I'm, I have a treasured book, The Garden Book, which uh, John produced the cover for and I've had this for many years. I think, John, you might have even given me a copy. John and Brian uh, can join ideas in the publication and it's a gastronomic banquet. As Sue mentioned, it will be for sale this evening and um, after our conversation, which will go for approximately 40 minutes, uh, we will hear a playlist, that, a short playlist that John has assembled uh, to inspire us. There are two other texts in the publication by Edward Collis and Paul Carter that very much uh, bookend uh, the publication. So Brian Castro was born in 1950 in Hong Kong of Portuguese, Chinese and English parentage and was educated in Sydney, after which he worked in Australia, France and Hong Kong as a teacher and writer. His first novel, Birds of Passage 1983, was joint winner of the Australian Vogel Literary Award. This was followed by Pomeroy and Double Wolf, which won numerous prizes, including the Age Fiction Prize. After China, 1992 won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award that year. 
His sixth novel, Stepper, was awarded the National Book Council Prize for Fiction. And his fictional autobiography, Shanghai Dancing, was named New South Wales Book of the Year. His novels have been translated into French, German and Chinese. Castro is currently the Chair of Creative Writing at the University of Adelaide. John Young was born of Southern Chinese and French-Dutch parentage in the then British colony of Hong Kong, but he moved to Australia in 1967. He read Philosophy of Science and Aesthetics at the University of Sydney and later studied and taught painting at Sydney College of the Arts. With over 60 solo exhibitions and having exhibited regularly nationwide, as well as in Berlin, Shanghai and Hong Kong, his works have been shown in many major exhibitions. John contributed some of the earliest writings on postmodernism in the context of art in Australia. Recently, John has presented the History Projects, creating projects in relation to the history of the Chinese diaspora in Australia. These projects include the design and construction of Open Monument, a permanent monument in Ballarat, and his recent exhibition, None Living Knows, was held at Arquan earlier this year. So the format tonight will be a discussion between the three of us, but we thought that the um, optimum way to commence would be if Brian could kindly read a poem. Which, which poem do you want me to read up there? <laughs> um, I think you'd like to... See, this, this project is uh, made up of like a, like a menu. So it starts with uh, appetisers and entrees. And, and then... Uh, oh, you want this one, OK. This is the, the very end of the menu, which is... Um, it's just called Cigars. Um, and it's a sodad for, for John Young. Uh, it's my homage to John... Sodad in Portuguese means sadness. It's hard to translate it, uh, but people used to write letters to each other when, in the days when you used to write letters, which was a piece of art, um, and you would end it up, instead of saying, yours sincerely, you would say, sodad, meaning sadness, my homeland is gone, I feel dreadful melancholia. Uh, so it's a sodad for John Young, uh, with reference, of course, to Macau. Macau does not exist anymore for me. Glossed in hyper-reality, postmodern madness, building upon rebuilding and filling in and dumping and clearing and faking up all kinds of sadness. In the Marienbad casino next to the Venetian, woman A is being courted by man X, who mercilessly beats the woman's husband M in games. It is a labyrinth of disorientation in a room full of rhizomes, lies, deceptions, flowers and fine arts. And outside there are gondolas afloat in a fake lagoon. And by the tables the women swoon, their men in tuxedos offering placebos. At the end of the spin the lucky ball will fall with a huge big deal for our next of kin. As in your art, Macau is now a city of forgetting searching for memory. When deciphered through chalk on slate or a photographic plate, or through your tapestries woven with the histories of exotic countries, flesh on silk, ink on linen, the names we stole are captured in cloth you've unfurled to reveal so much than just 
the gambling centre of the world. Having studied Ludwig Wittgenstein, you know that culture determines the way we see, that a person's name is, has to be, the picture of a situation. Doubled and tripled, we crossed borders easily, but now the paranoia of ignorance has folded up your tapestry and it's a DNA test for ancestry which supposedly clarifies how humanity runs in generations alongside insanity, depending on the periodic flood that brings on the clash of blood. Oh, but to harbour an aftertaste for a salty, hazy sea where others have ventured before, gambling with a past in a convex mirror, which shaped a world that didn't last and didn't deliver glory, but ended in a sabotage of fantasy and untranslatable melancholy, a sudad. That determines the way we see. We don't have to depart right now. We'll long for returning by indulging in dreams. This isn't enough of the real in the smell of chow chow, the flavours of Macau, in the glare of liquid days, mirage of home-going, not home-coming, strolling from room to room, listening for the dinner chime. It's good your images beckon first. I reckon we can enter here. Our reason is that they rhyme with a fragrancy sublime. Let's start then on this ancient journey. Thank you. That was a very beautiful invocation of John's work, but also Macau. Can you both tell me how the concept for the book arose? What was the genesis for Macau Days? Um, thank you, Nestle. Uh, uh, actually, uh, the I did an exhibition in Hong Kong in, in uh, 2012 called the Macau Days, and the, and the reason why I chose that uh, particular topic was um, uh, the conditions in Macau had changed substantially. It's changed from a beautiful transcultural port that has existed for more than 500 years to, to this gambling hothouse um, and uh, it's phantasmagoric trumpian place of 38 casinos. Uh, everything that I'd known as a child from Macau is in a sense gone. Um, and at that time also, I think I was also familiar with uh, Omar Pamuk's book on Istanbul. And, uh, and it was very interesting how evocative the melancholia of a place uh, and one's feelings towards a place um, can be placed in a book form, but I'm an artist, so uh, you know I, I felt I needed to at least do something visual, and so uh, I did this exhibition in Hong Kong called the Macau Days in 2012, um, and that's the beginning of, of my part of it. And um, when John sent me the catalogue, um, I said, "Oh well, Macau, we both share something." I, I used to spend my childhood in Macau. Uh, my father was. Uh, how would you call that? Lothario? Lothario. It's always womanising and uh, carrying on. And he was never there, so he used to send us off to Macau, my mother and I, uh, to kind of keep us quiet, as it were. And um, so Macau was a place of sadness as well as a place of complete freedom. I used to run around the streets, living at the Bella Vista Hotel and having a great time. Uh, anyway, I said to John, I said, look... Um, we should do something together on this. Um, and it took about four, 
four and a half, five years to, to come together. Um, and, uh, and John said, well, the thing we can do about this, because we've worked on um, catalogues and stuff, uh, is, to, is to do a book. Um, so I said, yes, of course, a book is great. Let's call it, you know, kind of objet d'art. Um, and, uh, and it's something that people can have, you know, individually. Um, and uh, not only is it luscious in the way that it's been presented uh, by Art in Australia, but it's uh, in three languages. And I thought, well, the interesting thing is that Macau is trilingual. You know, everywhere you go in buses and take taxis and whatever, you've got Portuguese, you've got Chinese, and you've got English. Um, and uh, the Portuguese are in increasing their cultural input into Macau because... Uh, not having been colonists as such, they were traders, they just lived there and traded. Um, the Chinese have never seen them as enemies or colonizers. Uh, so in a way, they're just doing what they do, and that is through language, uh, through culture. Um, and I was very surprised, John and I went there in March this year, just to consolidate everything, and uh, very surprised to see that there are two... Portuguese radio stations, Portuguese language radio stations, four Portuguese language newspapers uh, amidst all the Chinese and English. Uh, so in a way, they're, they're still trading. And the hotel we were staying in? Yes, the hotel we were staying at is Trump's, um, which is the St. Regis, and it overlooks the Venetian, which is, I suppose, part of the Sands group, and uh, Trump again. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was kind of bizarre because the waterfront had shifted. I hadn't been back for 45 years. The waterfront had shifted from uh, where the, the Praia Grande used to be, which is the sea wall, five streets back. So they're filling in the harbour, and my taxi driver said you could one day just walk across to the islands. Uh, there'd be no more sea left. And so ecologically, I felt very strange about what's happening um, that somehow, you know, it's not just about casinos. Let's infuse a bit more culture into it. And the Portuguese have actually established now national trusts amongst um, all the churches and all the ruins. So in one way, the world has exerted its pressure from this massive development. Uh, just to give you a, a picture as well about the, uh, the Fantasmagoria that's happening is that with the 38 casinos... Um, I heard that there was actually a one-to-one -one replica of uh, St. Marco Square in Macau, which you could see immediately as soon as you arrived, virtually. But I said, but where are the gondolas? And, uh, and, the, and, and the guy at the reception said, third floor. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, we got into the lift and, you know, we went up the lift and, you know, as, as the lift was going up, you could smell the chlorine. And uh, ding, you know, the... The, uh, the actual lift door opened, and there it was, you know, a canal on the third floor with um, Italian, very handsome Italian men, you know, like, you know, uh, on the gondola singing. So uh, Brian was a bit uh, apprehensive in, in, in taking one of those, and I said, no, no, we must. <laughs> we must step into this postmodern horror. And, uh, and so we did, didn't we? Uh, and it wasn't, well, it was pretty bad. <laughs> Well, he, he kept singing as he rode us 100 metres and then back again. Um, and, you know, it was interesting to see because, um, you know, the, the Chinese tourists mainly who were gambling uh, threw coins into it. 
Um, it's not a wishing well, but they kind of threw coins into the canal and there's all this coins littered at the bottom. Um, anyway, that, that, there's a photo of it at the back of the book so, <laughs> instead of an author's photo. I wonder if we could explore the idea of um, food, recipes, sustenance that is a key feature of the book um, and what we might think of as the walk of memory and also your predilection for certain food called quindims, which is a custody coconut sweet of your childhood? Um, well, I think this came fairly late in the piece that, you know, I started writing some poems and then I thought, well, what's, what's the difference between this book and other books where there's just art and text or, uh, you know, catalogue essays or whatever? Um, and I thought, well, the thing is that this is a practical book. So you've got Portuguese, uh, Macanese actually, Macanese. Um, recipes throughout each one and what I did was some research I couldn't do uh, 100% research on it but there were some of these six authors that had very favourite meals uh, that they liked or cooked uh, so I got the recipes from a particular old lady who was incredibly charming in Macau and her name was Gracia Jorge and she was about 80 years old and th she said these recipes came from my great-grandfather. They were secret recipes that hadn't been published anywhere um, and she decided to now publish it in Portuguese. So you can't even get it in English. So I've given you the English, which if you want to cook it, um, you, can, you can try because I think a book needs to be worked here. Yeah? It's not just an object of art that, that I was saying. It needs to have saffron stuck between the pages and curry and uh, you know, onions and all kinds of things. So you can, you can try these ones out. John, can you tell us about your exquisite imagery that accompanies the book? There are many sort of levitating, hovering figures. Um, they're quite diaphanous. They reference photography. They're floating in space. And there's a particular work that we were discussing before called Marienbad after the uh, 1961 film last year at Marienbad that is um, very beautiful and I'll... I'll hold it up to show everyone. If you could tell us how you com about your composition. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll just talk in general uh, a, a little bit about the, uh, the actual way in which um, uh, the visual imagery is produced. Uh, the fact that uh, there are quite a number of characters that uh, I had to deal with... Um, and these characters were all actually from, from different times. They were, they were actually, you know, uh, some were actually in the recent past, in, uh, you know, in the 1930s or 40s. Uh, and then there were some in the 19th century. Um, and some of them uh, in the 19th century, they were basically transient characters that went from Portugal to Macau and then to Japan or wherever. So, so I only knew of them through uh, reading around Macau, so to speak, not in, when they were in Macau. And, and then there were the mythological characters, the ones that you described as, as being floating characters, like Mazu, who was actually uh, a, a very interesting goddess uh, that uh, was probably, at least in myth, she was a clairvoyant, and she was a very silent girl, and she actually was the goddess of seafarers, and she actually saved a lot of uh, people's lives and then finally drowned by attempting to save her own father. So, 
So, uh, and there's also a temple there dedicated to her. But this character was in a mythical form. So, so in a sense, I really had to find uh, different uh, ways to evoke these different characters. And I think that um, that is in itself uh, a wonderful, wonderful challenge to, to be able to devise different rhetorics for the, those. Uh, as far as Marion Bet's concerned, um, I was looking at a, a particular uh, mechanism man's uh, interior. Uh, he was a, you know, he married a Chinese woman and, and he collected a tremendous amount of pottery. But it was this like every single wall was covered with plates and, and, and Chinese antiques in his house. And it was like this sort of mania, this sort of transcultural mania that, that people get into. It, was, it wasn't melancholy in, in the way how we know it. It was, it was just like this, this complete uh, sense of inundation of different cultures compressed into one place where you don't quite know where your subjectivity is anymore. And in that sense, it reminded me of that film, The Last Year at Marenberg, where, where the characters were actually uh, involved in this triangular relationship where they didn't know themselves anymore. And on top of that, one of the great scenes in Marenberg was actually in the casino, where there were these uh, different uh, you know, uh, mirrors that reflected all their imagery. And I thought, oh, that's perfect for Macau, because there's 38 casinos Macau. You touched on the... There is actually six mythological or historical characters that give the publication a structure and you very carefully unearth them and poetically inscribe them into the book. Can you talk about some of these characters? Well, um, John's already mentioned Mazu, the goddess. I suppose she was a bit mythical as well as a real person. Um, 980, I think, that's uh, when she lived. Um, the... We both chose different characters. John had about three, I think, and I added another three. Um, and, uh, of course, you can't go past the, the most famous of all Portuguese poets, uh, Luiz Vaz de Camões, who, who actually uh, was a, an adventurer and ended up a shipwrecked sailor and ended up in Macau, actually, and wrote uh, a part of his uh, great poem, uh, Os Lusiades, meaning the Lusiads, meaning... Lusitania, you know, the great poem of Portugal. Um, and uh, he lived in a grotto in, um, in Macau, and that grotto is still there. It's called the Camões Gardens, uh, and you can see the, the cave where he lived. Um, and then uh, there was, uh, you know, saints and sinners, I call them, because uh, there was Wu Li, who, you know, it went the other way. Chinese people converted to Catholicism and became Jesuits. And then there's him, Venceslao <laughs> de Moraes, who, um, who uh, uh, went to Macau, married a Chinese woman, left her, went to Japan, married a Japanese woman. She died, then he married her niece. Um, and um, maybe to his just desserts, he ended up a very lonely man with his dog and died. So that's a brief story. Uh, and, uh, and then there's um, Giuseppe Castiglioni, who wasn't Portuguese, but who was... Uh, from Milan, and he, he was one of the successes. He, he got in through, into China through Macau and then ingratiated himself to the emperor, and the emperor thought he was great, you know, this man who hardly ate uh, and painted the emperor in a different way, in a European way. The emperor loved this, so uh, I just simply invented the fact that um, Castiglioni 
Castiglione's favorite food was this huge gluttony for meat, uh, which he indulged when no one was looking. Um, and on Saturday nights, uh, he would eat this thing, and he would not call it anything, but it was in Portuguese, it was called o diabo, meaning the devil's dish. Uh, so, of course, he couldn't use the word devil. So, um, yeah, and then there was Camilo Pesanha, who I think is one of the great unsung symbolist poets uh, in any language, uh, who went to Macau, again married into uh, the Chinese uh, family, um, and uh, unfortunately uh, got addicted to opium and died of that. Uh, so these people who, who kind of went tropo, if you like, in, in, uh, in Macau. There's a, also a, a slight facetious addition on my part of the, on the back of the book where uh, I felt that uh, the goddess uh, Mazu was, 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 was getting a, a very centre stage, but in fact there were women sinners as well, or maybe they were not sinners. Uh, there's a history of, of women pirates uh, in the southern seas in China for several centuries. And, uh, and, and they sort of uh, basically were ex-prostitutes and, and, and they got jack off for the men, obviously, and then they started to create this, can you call it an army or a navy of, uh, of uh, pirates, women pirates. There are 20,000 of them that, that, that actually ruled the southern seas. And they would, you know, there was a man that Brian and I discussed often, called a dog man, and this, this man obviously had done some disservice to, to one of the the main uh, captains, women captain, and she kept him in a cage for 14 years on a deck. And so by the time when they let him out, he, he could only crawl around like a dog. And um, so these women pirates basically uh, were so powerful that, in fact, when they wanted to go back on land again, there was nothing the government could do except to exonerate them. And they became, you know, like very comfortable, lived very comfortably with their illegitimate children. John, I wonder if we could talk about uh, your blackboard paintings. So in tandem with your very diaphanous uh, paintings, you have these blackboard paintings that are almost like haiku, and I'm wondering if you were thinking about Brian's poetic form, and they have slogans on them like stuttering souls. Can you tell us about these works? Well, artists are stutterers, I think. Uh, we have absolutely no capacity to write whatsoever or speak. So, um, so in, that, in that sense, uh, uh, um, well, it goes back a little bit because it goes back to a, an original project I did in Berlin called Bonhoeffer in Harlem. And basically, in that particular project, I asked a lot of people to to make tapestries and so on and so forth, and I discovered that my own role as an artist is really almost inconsequential compared to the things that people from Nepal were weaving and so on and so forth. And in that sense, it, it really changed my sense of my own subjectivity as an artist. It changed my sense of being attempting to be a master artist trying to do some great point about the world to really learning about other subjectivities and other people. And as a result, I developed these blackboard drawings because these blackboard drawings were very succinct, very didactic, and very brief. Words are there to teach me what these people are like. 
it wasn't there to, to be didactic to the audience in a sense. It was there to, to be didactic to, to myself about the values that other people have uh, and, and trying to, to gain some empathy uh, in all the different history projects, particularly about the Chinese in Australia, of uh, these people's values. Can we touch on that idea of the Chinese in Australia and the whole idea of the diaspora, um, migration, itinerancy, um, even vagrancy, and how both of you draw on that as a source in your own personal histories and your work? You did the Bendigo thing, right? The Ballarat thing. That was a kind of monument to... Chinese migration in the 19th century. Yeah, um, I, 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 the reason why I've launched into this, these projects about the Chinese diaspora is because um, there actually has never been any visual history uh, of the Chinese people in Australia, visual history. I mean, there are texts written, and mainly by Anglo historians who uh, kindly guarded this history because a lot of the Chinese people at that point were illiterate, you know. So I'm very grateful that these people like John Fitzgerald and people like that has actually guarded this history. However, there has been no uh, really history of the Chinese in Australia. Uh, and I think always that the Chinese in Australia deserves at least a chapter in Australian studies. studies. And so uh, I thought that uh, after 40 years of working in the art world, I thought I can, I've learned how to speak a word and I've learned how to speak a sentence. Finally, I've learned how to speak a paragraph. So it, it landed on me to do this this project that I really, in, in a way, uh, thought was a little bit sort of, um, you know, social history, but but there there wasn't anybody else to articulate it, so maybe I needed to, you know, articulate it, and so um, so that's how it came to be that that uh, I'm still doing those projects uh, until it's finished, and I'm, it's taking a lot of different forms, a little different rhetoric. Um, and different layers now. Uh, hopefully as layered as Brian's novels one day. But, uh, you know, I mean, I think that Brian teach me so much about the way in which we could have a density in art rather than just single avant-garde propositions. Do you want to comment about um, the Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, with, re with respect to, to a lot of um, historians, um, Eric Rolls wrote wonderful book on the Chinese in Australia. Um, and I was so um, taken with his book that I wrote him a letter and then finally we corresponded and then I ended up by sending him a bottle of whiskey and he came to his post office in Coonabarabran or somewhere and he said, it's a box sent to me by Fidel. And he thought it was a bomb. Um, and uh, so <laughs> that was my connection with uh, a couple of Chinese, uh, Anglo-Chinese historians, put it that way. Um, so there, there is a history, but uh, not well-known, and certainly not uh, in visual terms, I think, in, um, in Australia. I, I mean, there is actually one... one uh, I was wrong. There was actually one history, uh, visual history of uh, Chinese in Australia, but it was done in 1988 during the bicentennial, and it was called A Harvest of Endurance, and basically it was painted by two Nanjing professors who, who weren't born here. So uh, in a sort of quasi-socialist realist style, uh, very patriotic, you know. And uh, maybe I just feel that at this point in time as uh, Chinese Australians were a bit more chaotic than that. 
I think that might be an apt moment to pause um, and open up the floor to questions. Do we have any questions? John, hello. Just a quick question about the recipes, I guess, because they're such an um, unusual insertion into the book. And Brian, the fact that you'd collected them from somebody whose great-great-grandmother had provided them. John, you cooked the recipes for the book? No, no, I, I didn't cook it. I just merely photographed it. You photographed it. it. Yeah. Um, actually, there was a lot of research in the background of this book. And uh, and we did this, uh, you know, chop suey with it, you know, in a sense, because because I mean the uh, the recipes are from Brian's uh, eighty year old grandmother reference, and uh, and it was cooked by Jeffrey Salaji here, and uh, the research was done by Claire Hilscher over there, and um, and. Uh, Elliot Rush, who's not here, she's in Macau. So there's a lot of people involved in in the actual um, data collecting. Because they hadn't been cooked previously, is that right? Well, not for a long Well, time. I don't think they have, have they? Um, if you look up recipes for Macanese cooking, um, they vary, but they're not as... Um, they're very different. They're, they're kind of... Uh, I think there's a woman called Hamilton or somebody who who had all these kind of uh, recipes, but they, they they taste really bland if you if you cooked it. Uh, so I thought, um, you know, the the thing that Grasha uses is a lot of ginger um, and a lot of chili, and um, so um, I, I thought, yeah, to give that spice, it's really wonderful. But you know, a culture I think is a culture on the verge of extinction, which I think, you know, when you say the Macanese people, what are they? Um, they mainly left, um, and they have relations uh, and relatives and everything all over the world. You know, Los Angeles mainly in Sydney. Uh, but um, this whole idea of capturing this culture—that's why it's the walk of memory and there's its flavour. So when you taste something, and I don't want to be bland about multiculturalism, etc. You know, where everything is just about dancing and cooking. Uh, but I think. Uh, the culture on the verge of extinction is, is always, always leaves a legacy, not necessarily a written or a visual legacy, but a, a flavour, a smell. Um, and smell is the great catalyst of memory, as Proust told us, you know, dipping his madeleine into the tea. So It was actually one of the hardest things to design in a book because how do you design it so that people consider these dishes... Uh, not as a cookbook, but maybe as a cookbook, you know, we don't quite know. And uh, but we knew we had to put this in, and uh, so yeah, John Warwick did a the fantastic job of doing it in three languages. Uh, that's the other thing that I want to say about the, my chalk drawings is that they're always in three, two to three different languages. It, they are multilingual. The, the artworks that I do now, uh, which is one thing I feel in Australian art, there is a necessity to start producing art in polylingual forms, you know. It asks the audience to actually learn another language and to, so that they can see the new forms of life. It's, it's very important. Um, and, yeah, so maybe introducing this food aspect is also... It's a language of its, its own. It's a language yeah. of its own, yeah. It's like music. 
This is for John and Brian. You both said that when you went back to Macau that it almost everything had disappeared that you remembered from your childhood. Was there anything or was there one thing that's still there that seemed authentic and and could take you back? Can I start first? Um, a restaurant. Uh, <laughs> if you ever get to Macau, please go to Fernando's. Uh, Fernando is a wonderful uh, restaurant where he doesn't accept credit cards, so you have to pay by cash. But if you haven't got any cash, you can say, I'll pay you tomorrow. So it's that kind of restaurant, and it's, uh, it's just wonderful the way that uh, these Portuguese dishes, uh, he, he does it in such a, an old traditional way. So the bacalao, the fish, the cod, and the clams, and, uh, and uh, Portuguese wines, uh, it's beautiful. So... If you get a chance, it's not expensive. I think it's a really good question because it's like any uh, migrants that come to Australia, their vision of uh, what is in their previous land is always distorted. You know, it was probably something in the past. And, uh, and Macau is no different except it really has been demolished by this Trumpian, you know, sort of scenario. Uh, so in, in that sense, I think that it was very strange being back there where the, the memory overtakes the reality quite often, you know, when you're walking somewhere. And uh, uh, I guess in my art and everything, it's really trying to, to reimagine uh, what once was in a way, you know. I mean, that's all we can do in every diaspora, people from different diasporas in Australia. Uh, it's a sort of a diaspora art in a way. One final question here. Oh, this is a slightly facetious question directed to Brian. Um, and Brian, you've spoken a lot um, in your books, both your essays and autobiographical fiction, about hybridity, particularly in relation to writing. And, I'm, and you've done it again with this wonderful book with John where it could be cookbook, could be poetry, could be art... Where do you think this, how do you think this will be categorised by bookstores and where, where, which shelf do you see it sitting on? In the window. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully no genre uh, because I've suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in the past where um, my second book, my third book, Double Wolf, was in the animal section. Uh, so, you know, and after China I actually went in geography section. Uh, so, yeah, I hope, you know, without, without generic classification... Uh, this is a puzzle, this book. I think it's a strange... Even John and I were discussing it today, uh, and we said, yeah, this is a really strange thing. Uh, I don't know how people will take it. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a hybrid work, uh, but by the same token, I think it's a, hopefully a very genuine hybrid work, um, and maybe, maybe that's the, the 21st century. I think we've touched on... Secret recipes, philandering families, diasporas, poems, and many more. Please join me in thanking John Young and Brian Castro for their luminous insights. <laughs>